Hello, I'm Peter Van Dusen, and this is the Primetime Politics Podcast. Hello, on our program tonight, a special edition of Primetime Politics with the long-awaited appearance tonight of Canada's ambassador to China, Dominic Barton, at a special House committee on Canada-China relations. We'll have extended coverage of his testimony on the poor state of the relationship and efforts to release two Canadians detained uh, for over a year in China. But ahead of that, an area of the relationship where there appears to be relatively good cooperation between Canada and China, and that's the response to the coronavirus outbreak in China. The airlift of Canadians stranded in that country because of the outbreak has been delayed because of the weather, but it is expected uh, that a plane will land there within hours. And the Canadian government has also found space for more Canadians on a U.S. flight out of China. At last count now, around 375 Canadians have asked for the government's help to get out of the country. A plane's been on standby in Vietnam to fly into Wuhan, China to collect the Canadians. But it can carry only 211 passengers once the crew and medical staff are accounted for as well. So some Canadians will not get on that flight. Instead, the Canadian government has managed to uh, find some seats for a few dozen Canadians on a U.S. State Department flight out of China. Today, the Ministers of Health and Foreign Affairs provided an update on the latest evacuation plans. We now have secured a few seats on the flights organized by the United States authorities. Individuals who are eligible for travel on these flights are being contacted as we speak by our consular officials in Yuan. This plane is currently scheduled to depart Yuan a few hours after the Canadian plane. It will land first in Vancouver, where Canadian passengers will disembark for onward travel to CFB Trenton, where they will be subject to the same processes as those Canadians traveling on the Canadian flight. You say a few people, how many do you mean? And uh, we're talking about a few dozen. Uh, obviously, a few dozen, because this is obviously fluctuating. Uh, we have been talking to the U.S. State Department. As I said to you this morning, uh, the priority that I have with Minister Aydou is obviously uh, to care for Canadians and to repatriate all those who want to be repatriated and to do that in an orderly fashion and to do that as quickly as possible. So obviously we'll have our Canadian plane, but at the same time, as I said all along, we are talking to allies and now uh, we had an offer by the U.S. State Department uh, who's going to have a plane which will be departing shortly after our own plane to put a number of Canadians on board. The reason why I can give you the exact number is, again, about the manifest. We won't know until uh, we coordinate on the ground. I would say it's a few dozen, and I'll get back to you when I have the, the exact manifest because it's depending on how many seats there are going to be, how many American citizens there will be, and how many Canadians, but we will provide you the detail as soon as we have the detail. We are here to help Canadians. That's bottom line. That's been the Prime Minister set the tone from day one. We are there to help Canadians. So we have the Canadian plane. We have a U.S. option, which has materialized now. The State Department just called us before I came to question period to offer a number of seats. And we will look at the end. We will look at the manifest of Flight Canada, I would say. The number will go on the U.S. plane. And we'll look at the manifest. And if there are still Canadians, who want to be evacuated, obviously we have the other option to sending a second Canadian plane to repatriate them. How many Canadians from on the American plane from Vancouver to Trenton? So uh, the ND is looking at different options with respect to transferring these passengers from Vancouver. 
uh, because Vancouver is going to be the refueling station for the American plane. So the Canadians would be deplaning, and DND, I uh, should say, Department of Defense of Canada, is looking at the various options to take these Canadian nationals from Vancouver to Trenton. As you said, you spoke with other allies this earlier today. How many others are you actively speaking with? Well, listen, we're speaking home? to. <laughs> I would say a number of G7 countries because I'm speaking to some, our officials are in touch. There, there's a great coordination. Everyone wants to do the right thing and we are working together. The health minister, as you know, at the call and Minister Haidu can add to that. Certainly on the foreign affairs side, we're working together to help as many people as we can. On the process, so you've already spelled out that Chinese officials will, will screen Canadians and Canadian military will screen Canadians. What is the process if they're getting on the American plane? Is it similar to what is going to happen to make sure that whoever's Canadians that are getting on that plane are being screened in the same way so that it's not two classes? So China has a, a, a rule for all countries that are expatriated, uh, that are bringing, uh, uh, repatriating people to Canada that nobody can travel when they're sick. And don't forget, this is a global effort to stop the spread of a virus that is, including China's, uh, what we've talked about as uh, extraordinary efforts. You know, as, as Dr. Tam said recently, it's something that we have never seen in modern public health history with 60, 60 million people in quarantine. But on, on, on that question, that is why that they are so insistent that people that are ill are, don't leave the country. Partly because they have a global responsibility to try and contain the spread of the illness, and partly because there is no indication when someone is symptomatic how ill they might get. get. The range of this disease actually can, you know, you can have very mild symptoms all the way up to having severe pneumonia and respiratory illness leading to death. Now, death is estimated right now at about 2% of the cases, relatively low, but that range is really what I think the Chinese government is concerned about. And I want to remind Canadians right now that the risk remains low to Canadians, that uh, we still are in a situation where our officials are working extremely well together, as evidenced by how quickly we're being able to detect cases and, and keep people healthy. But I also want to ask that people who are traveling from the Hubei region uh, consider isolation at home to help us with that global effort to contain that spread for 14 days. So the American process will be similar to the Canadian one. You had spelled it out very clearly that on the plane, if somebody starts to present symptoms, they'll be separated. And then how do you, once the plane change happens in Vancouver, make sure that these people who will be moving into quarantine remain secured, so to speak? Well, so, uh, you know, the DND the staff will be working very closely with the, the staff that will be working on the American plane. They obviously have the same goals. They do not want in any way to help uh, contribute to spread of the illness. And so all of the officials that are working closely together have the same goal in mind, which is making sure that we contain the spread of the disease. Let's not forget this is a global effort. And Canada's playing its part by ensuring that we take appropriate precautions and that we transport carefully and that we, we you know, use the measures that we have to ensure that we're taking care of people both abroad and locally. And I, I, again, I think it's worthy to say that those processes are working very efficiently at all levels. So that's the latest on the government's efforts to repatriate Canadians from China because of the coronavirus outbreak. The broader issue of Canada's strained relationship with China was the subject of a meeting tonight of the special committee of the House of Commons on Canada-China relations. 
And the witness tonight was Canada's ambassador to China, Dominic Barton, the businessman appointed by the Trudeau government to try to repair the damaged relationship with China that's included the detention of two Canadians in that country for more than a year. So there's high interest in questioning Dominic Barton, and as you'll hear, he did face questions about the relationship, but also critical questions, very pointed questions about his qualifications to be the ambassador and his background in the private sector. Here's an extended excerpt of his time uh, and the questioning of Dominic Barton at the committee hearing tonight. Ambassador, our first questioner today, Mr. Jenis. Thank you, Mr. Chair, and thank you, Mr. Ambassador. I, I do want to say at the outset, with greatest respect, um, that I felt at the time of your appointment and still feel that you are a completely uh, inappropriate choice as ambassador. Um, and that's not because of your personal qualifications, but it's because, as you said today, we expect our diplomatic corps to defend our interests and our values. And I look at the track record uh, with McKinsey and some of the things uh, that McKinsey was involved in, uh, and those raise big red flags for me in terms of, uh, of your position as now being the representative of Canada defending our interests and our values. Uh, at the time you were in charge of McKinsey, from 2009 to 2018, uh, it's my understanding that you advised almost two dozen Chinese state-owned companies uh, according to the New York Times, one of those companies was the China Communications Construction Company. Uh, could you confirm for me, first of all, that McKinsey did work for the China Communications Construction Company while you were there? Um, I'm, I'm, I'd have to check that out, but I, if I, I'm happy to agree to that if that's you read it in the New York Times. Yeah. I, would you be prepared to submit to this committee a list of all of the Chinese state-owned companies that you did work for at McKinsey? Um, what, what I would, Mr. Chair, what I would need to do is talk, we, or McKinsey's pretty careful about client confidentialities and where they are. I'd be happy for if there was some mechanism so it isn't in the public domain, but some people can look at it. I'm open to, um, to, to that. What, what I would remark, though, is that, first of all, I'd say I'm very proud of my career and time in the private sector and, and with McKinsey and the work that we did. Uh, that firm has worked with many companies um, around the world. We've, we're, we're known for telling truth to power uh, and, and calling it out as it is. So, um, Okay. Um, you're proud of that, and, and we know that, and that's important. I think that that's, that's on the record. Um, w when you uh, signed on to the China Communications Construction Company, when you signed them as a client in 2015, uh, they were still under World Bank sanctions because of corruption and bid rigging they engaged in in the Philippines. Um, would you have been aware that they were under sanctions when you signed them on as a client? You, Mr. Chair, what I would say is that uh, McKinsey has over 3,000 clients we work with. I'm not familiar with that at all. I wasn't involved. I wasn't doing any uh, client work. I was based in London uh, at the time. I'm not looking at that. So I'm, I'm just not familiar uh, with the details of that. Okay. Um, it, it, you were in charge of McKinsey, though, and you were setting, I assume, broad policy direction. Uh, like, for example, um, you, were, you were involved in... McKinsey was advising a company uh, that was carrying out uh, the, the Chinese government's policy of building islands, militarized islands in the South China Sea. Um, you know, is it your position that those islands are a violation of international law? Uh, Mr. Chair, what I would say with that is uh, I'm 
not familiar at all with us being involved in uh, designing the islands in the uh, South the South China Sea. Uh, you'd, you'd, if you want to talk to someone at McKinsey to find out more information, I'm sure we'd be happy to get someone to talk to you about it. But. Well, well, okay, let, let me just back up a second then in terms of your position now. Do, do you agree with the Permanent Court of Arbitration's ruling that China's program of the construction of militarized islands in the South China Sea violates international law? Do you agree with that? Um, I would follow the policy of what uh, the government uh, does I think the gov I think the Canadian government uh, respects um, international uh, opinions, but we don't have a view on maritime issues. So I'd, I'd have to look at what our our policy is on that. I don't. Okay, but you're, but you're Canada's ambassador to China, so you're a spokesman for our policy on China, and it's your job to communicate that policy to Canadians and to the Chinese government. So if you were asked in a meeting with a Chinese official if if our view was consistent with the Hague's tribunal's view. Uh, would you agree, yes, that the tribunal was right, that these islands violate international law? Yeah. I, well, first of all, what I would do in that is I wouldn't make up an answer. I would actually go and look to see what uh, we do. I mean, what, what I see here is that, you know, can, I would say, I would, I would probably say, let me get back to you uh, on it because I'm not familiar with all of the pieces. Canada opposes unilateral actions that escalate tensions and undermine stability in the international order. Um, so it's it's a simple policy question. It's interesting that you're sort of not briefed on on the answer to what is. Uh, I mean, I think everybody around this table knows what's happening in the South China Sea that it's a violation of international law. Um, and you may not remember, but your company was was involved in advising uh, the China Communications Construction Company at a time uh, when they were working on this very project in violation of international Mr. Chair, law. Chair, can I just uh, inter interject for a second? I said there's a very different point when you make that the company was involved while this was happening doesn't mean that McKinsey was advising that. So you need to In charge of the more. company, sir. It's like when the prime minister says that, oh, I didn't do it. It was a functionary in the bureaucracy. The buck has to stop somewhere. And you were running the company. So you were setting the policy direction. And it, and it wasn't just in in China, it wasn't just state-owned companies. It was, I mean, you, you know of the case in Saudi Arabia where a report that was prepared uh, identifying critics of the Saudi government led to them being, uh, uh, them being punished in a crackdown. I mean, there are so many different cases uh, when you were in the leadership of McKinsey of, of just gross problems in terms of, of cooperation with gross abusers of human rights. And your, your, your response to these questions is to say you don't know, you don't remember, and you weren't responsible when you were the guy running the show. I mean, that doesn't give me a lot of confidence that you running the show as ambassador. Thank, Thank you. you. I'm sorry, your time. We've exceeded your time. And uh, Ambassador, I'm afraid you'll have to wait for another opportunity if you wish to respond to that. Uh, we're on to Mr. Fragis-Kattis. Thank you, Mr. Chair. Thank you, Ambassador, for being here. Uh, in 2015, you co-authored a piece for the Center for International Relations and Sustainable Development, and there was a quote that stood out for me. In fact, it mirrors what we heard in your comments in, in many ways, but I'll read it to you. The world is rebalancing towards Asia, and China in particular. Canada must rebalance with it. Can you highlight for us the importance of this relationship. I know you've taken time to do that in your opening statement, but this is a fundamental relationship for Canada, for Canada now and in the future. Could you, at least that's my view and I think the view of most people in this country. Yeah. Expand on that. Sure. Well, I think that, um, you know, Canada is a small trading nation. We're a G7 country, but we, we depend on trade and we depend on trading with 
large markets, and one of the absolute largest markets in the world is China, and it's going to become the largest market. And so for Canada's future prosperity, I think it's very important that we're, we be there. And the, the, the thing that I find uh, most exciting about it is that there is a neat overlap in terms of what we have, uh, and that's not just the natural resources, which is obviously an important area, and we, we could do more with that, but it's also with our uh, brain power, right, and our regulatory approaches and our financial services, and I could, I could go on. So there's a neat overlap, and this could, will create many jobs. It will allow uh, Canadians with, with ideas and innovative thoughts to be able to expand them into, into bigger markets, um, and it's something that the whole country uh, can, can participate in. So again, it's a, China needs a lot of things that we have, um, and I think we could play a, an even more influential role in terms of how that economy and society evolves. Can I ask you, Ambassador, uh, and I acknowledge everything that you've said, but we are, I think you, the word you used in your statement was chill. We are in a, a very difficult moment in the relationship. Can you, do you have any thoughts on what's worked and what hasn't when other states have had challenges with, with China? Uh, any lessons learned that can be applied, particularly uh, the experience of liberal democracies, I think, would stand out and be quite appropriate. Anything that we can learn as a, as a lesson from that and apply to the current situation? Yeah, as I mentioned in, the, in my opening remarks, I sp spent a lot of time with ambassadors from other countries who've, who've gone through this. You think about Norway, Japan, uh, Singapore. I can, I can go on. And I think there are a couple of lessons learned. I think one is uh, is not to be bullied, is to, is to stand up for what we believe in and where we are and what we're going to do. Um, uh, number two is to maintain a long-term perspective, to think about the broader relationship, to continue to engage. There are a number of cases where the engagement stopped and it took a long, long time to get back. And, it, and the lesson learned from talking with that ambassador and, and uh, with the government there is they would have continued to, to engage. So I think it's being clear about what you want to do, it's being, it's continuing to engage and build and look for relationships to engage others to help uh, you in that uh, in that process. Those would be a couple of things I would suggest. Okay, uh, and on that point about engagement, there are those who have called for, uh, not just politicians. If you read the Globe and Mail, for example, there has been a number of op-eds calling for a much more confrontational approach, but. You've pointed to the need to continue to engage Beijing and, and the fact that, as you've highlighted here today, positives can come out of engagement. Can you talk about how that could help, uh, help strengthen the, uh, the current, help overcome the current impasse that we're in? Yeah, I, I think again the, that I think it is important to engage because you you I remember this clearly from the Singapore, talking to Singaporeans, you, you need to be, you have to have some relevance to be able to get things done and where you are and that's it's not just the economic relevance it's the trust and linkages that people actually have built um, in what they're doing and so I think it's important to to do that the, the other thing I would suggest and again there are different views I'm not I know there are views about let's go hard line let's cut everything off you know the, the question there I think is just just be prepared for what you ask for um, in in that type of a of an approach um, and I, I don't think it we have to go that way, I think there's there's a lot of reasonable people to be able to interact with in it, and so um, that's why I think it's a 
again, what I've learned and heard from other countries that are going through similar processes is engagement um, is important. And that is not to the exclusion of human rights, then? Absolutely not. I, I think you can, you can, as I said, it's, you can be very strict and strong in terms of how you feel and say it. And some might say, you know, we're in the, we're in the freezer box in terms of our linkage. Why would you even say anything? I think you, that's exactly the time to say it. We're not going to stop. It's there. And, uh, and I think that's important, uh, you know, just again, because when, when we re-engage, we want to make sure we're re-engaging in the right way for the long term. And that's something the Prime Minister feels very strongly about. 25 seconds. 25 seconds. Well, you talked about common objectives where we can work together. Uh, I quoted directly from your opening statement. Uh, should there be another round, I'd like to ask you more about that. I think that's really important to, uh, to emphasize, not to minimize at all the current challenges that we're facing. Of course, there's Mr. Covert, there's Mr. Spavor that are, are facing difficulties and their families are concerned, as are Canadians. But um, we have to keep in mind also the importance of the relationship as well. Thank, Thank you, sir. Thank you, Mr. Fajas Kallas. Uh, Mr. Bergeron. Monsieur le Président, uh, Excellence, merci d'être des nôtres uh, aujourd'hui. Um, puisque vous nous avez d'entrée de jeu uh, dit que vous aviez l'occasion, chaque fois que le l'opportunité se présentait de rencontrer les citoyens canadiens qui sont incarcérés présentement, je vous serais gré de bien vouloir leur transmettre toutes nos pensées. Euh, les membres de ce comité, euh, tous les membres de ce comité, sont profondément préoccupés par euh, leur sort, et je vous serais euh, infiniment reconnaissant de bien vouloir euh, leur transmettre euh, toute notre solidarité euh, par rapport à ce qu'ils vivent présentement. Euh, Monsieur le Président, euh, je ne vous cacherai pas le malaise que je ressens à la tournure de, des travaux de ce comité. Il m'apparaît, euh, bien honnêtement, que la pire des choses à faire dans les circonstances actuelles, c'est de miner la crédibilité de la personne qui représente le Canada auprès des autorités chinoises. Et je crois, au contraire que euh, votre expérience, le travail que vous avez fait jusqu'à présent, euh, vous qualifie largement pour la mission délicate qui vous a été confiée. Euh, on n'a qu'à voir le fait que dès le moment où vous avez été nommé, la spirale descendante des relations entre le Canada et la Chine s'est arrêtée. Et assez rapidement, on a pu euh, rétablir les exportations de porc vers la Chine. Bon, certains me diront qu'ils n'avaient pas le choix de toute façon parce que euh, la production nationale avec euh, la grippe porcine euh, ne permettait pas de suffire à la demande, mais il en demeure pas moins qu'on a senti un changement d'attitude. Et ce que j'en sais, c'est que ces visites que vous effectuez auprès des Canadiens incarcérés euh, ont un effet des plus positifs. Alors moi, je tiens à vous en remercier. Mais ça m'amène à ma question. Puisque votre présence, au-delà de euh, la qualité de votre personne, la qualité de votre expérience, la qualité de ce que vous connaissez de la, de la dynamique de la culture chinoise, est-ce que votre 
les effets que je viens de décrire ne sont pas la preuve la plus évidente que le gouvernement du Canada aurait dû agir beaucoup plus rapidement pour nommer un ambassadeur à Beijing plutôt que d'attendre huit mois pendant cette longue crise avant de combler le poste. Mr. Chair, th thanks for the comments and the questions. Uh, it's much appreciated, and I will definitely pass on the remarks to uh, to Michael Spaver, Michael Kovrig, and also to uh, to Robert Schellenberg uh, on that. That mean that means a lot um, uh, to hear that this committee is here and how people feel uh, about that. Um, on the uh, uh, question of uh, appointing an ambassador, I think you have. I'm. I wasn't part of the, the process. I, I, what I would say is that um, I think the fact that both ambassadors were appointed at the same time, it's a small step, but was a signal uh, that we wanted to be able to move forward. What I would say is that the, this chill in the relationship, I mean, the, 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 we're angry, we're very angry because of our people that have been taken. China's very angry as well about the map, furious, right? We're so we're both furious. And so I'll just say that the first conversation I had there was probably one of the most unpleasant conversations I've, I've ever had. I mean, the, the, sh the shaking and anger from there, and we were also, so it, was a, it wasn't a conversation. It was a, <laughs> it was, it was a two-way like reading of things. And, And so I, I don't, I think the dynamic was such that it was just, I think the government was trying to reach out. There wasn't any response, uh, right, in terms of where things were. There, so it wasn't even a basis to have a discussion. Um, and it was really in, uh, in Osaka where the prime, the prime Minister, because of alphabetical order, was sitting beside present to say, we've got to get through this in where it is. But I, I hope now that we, we We do actually have some channels, and we can we can now have real conversations uh, where we can interrupt each other. We can not just be angry, but we can actually try and be constructive. So, oh, sorry. Merci, Monsieur le Président. Euh, nous aurons l'occasion éventuellement de revenir euh, sur la séquence ayant mené à l'arrestation de, de Meng Wanzhou et l'effet d'entraînement que ça a eu sur les citoyens canadiens. Euh, nous y reviendrons assurément. Mais deux questions euh, fort simples. La première, est-ce que, à votre connaissance, euh, le gouvernement canadien, avant de, de prendre sa décision d'autoriser l'incarcération de Mme euh, Meng Wanzhou, a consulté euh, l'ambassade pour un avis, d'une part, et d'autre part, compte tenu du cas euh, similaire du couple Garrett en 2014 est-ce que euh, nous n'aurions pas dû être prévenus de ce qui risquait d'arriver? Very briefly, Ambassador, sorry. <laughs> uh, I, I think that, uh, I, Mr. Chair, on that one, I'm not aware of the actual conversations. I think justice has come through to sort of explain the process yesterday before and how, it, how, how the process worked. Um, but I wasn't part of the, the, those discussions and, and where it was, so I, I wouldn't be able to answer that. Okay. Yeah, but from what you know... Monsieur Bergeron, peut-être on pourrait euh, poursuivre plus tard parce que c'est le temps bon. de tout temps. Merci beaucoup. Mr. Harris. Thank you, Chair, and uh, thank you, Ambassador Barton, for your opening remarks. I, I want to echo Mr. Bergeron's uh, comments about and acknowledge your extraordinary efforts on a personal level in uh, personally visiting the uh, Mr. Skovrig uh, 
uh, Spavor and, and Schellenberg and offering them uh, your support. I think it is very meaningful and I've heard, uh, heard words to that effect. So thank you for doing that. Uh, you were appointed, of course, I, and I want to go into the effectiveness of, of some of the efforts internationally, and I think we may have a second round, sure, I, I hope we will, uh, to do some of that. But I, you were appointed you know, only recently in the middle of an election. Uh, you haven't appeared before a committee before, and this is sort of the first opportunity for us to uh, listen to you and also to raise some things that have been raised in the public domain, which I'm sure you're aware of. Uh, as late as today, we had a, a release from Democracy Watch suggesting that your holdings and your history and your current holdings and that of your wife and her involvement in, uh, in investments in the Asia Pacific gives rise to a conflict of interest. Now, I'm not gonna, I don't want to get into blind trusts and any of those things because these are um, detailed and, and potentially you know, lead to a big discussion. But I just do want to ask you this question uh, because I think Canadians deserve an answer. Uh, what do you say to, to Canadians uh, as to whether they should feel comfortable with you in this role, uh, given the fact that it's been suggested that uh, these involvements that would lead you to open to be in, in influence, uh, given the suggestion that perhaps uh, consciously or unconsciously your own uh, approach and attitude in dealing with the Chinese and the issues uh, may, may be influenced by your personal interests. Uh, what, what do you say to Canadians about that uh, criticism and that allegation. I wanted to give you an opportunity sure. to respond to that. Thank you, Mr. Chair. Um, the first thing I would say is that my integrity matters a lot to me. Uh, it, it matters a huge amount to me. So what people say or, or, or say I'm doing, and I've lived my life uh, in the highest integrity. So at a personal level, I would just, I'd say that. And there's a track record of people I've interacted with, worked with on, on that. The second is that I've been extraordinarily diligent with the uh, Conflict and Ethics Commissioner from the very beginning. Before this even happened, I said, I have a, my wife. I'm proud that she works. This is the situation you need to be aware of. I was very transparent about any of the issues that I, I have and so forth, so I've tried to be upfront uh, about that and transparent on, on everything that I've been involved in. Um, on it, and the third thing I would say is, from a financial point of view, I, you know, I, I think it was uh, John Manley who said, and I agree, this is the stupidest economic decision I could have made in my life, and that's I didn't do it for an econ, I did it for public service. I want to help. I feel I can help the country. I'm, I have no interest in making money from the, all these uh, any ideas about how I'm going to somehow set. The, I just is foreign to me. So I'm I'm following every single rule. I want to be way f far from the chalk line, if you will, and, and where it is. And, and I'm ha again, you can see it with the uh, Conflicts and Ethics Commissioner. It's how I've lived my life. It's not my objective here is I want to restore the relationship and I want to get the two Michaels out and the Schellenberg situation sorted. That's, my, I, that's what I want to try and achieve. Thank you, uh, Mr. Ambassador. <clears throat> the there's a number of other issues dealing with your, your involvement in China as with McKinsey and, and Group, and your, some of your statements about being bullish on China on the, the Belt and Road uh, project, which uh, some have suggested is, not, is contrary to Canada's interest in the, in the Asia-Pacific region, and uh, the uh, notable comment about drinking the Kool-Aid about uh, China and uh, President Xi. Uh, do you have a, any 
thoughts on that now, different from what you expressed so effusively into the sure. Council on Foreign Relations I, and others? Yeah, um, I'd say a couple of things. One is I, as I'm, I'm very bullish on the growth of China. I think there's a, it's going to continue to move the urbanization as I, I went through it. Many of the comments that I made were pre-2016, um, and I think things have changed. You know, the, the world changes and um, where it is. And so if you'd asked me what I felt about China in 2003 and what I wrote about what I said in 2009, what I, what I thought about Poland and different, you know what I mean? I, it so I do, I do have views that I express. It doesn't, I don't, I don't hold them uh, to the end of time. I, I, I put in my, my opening remarks, I am... Uh, again, in, amazed by the growth of what, where China is. I'm very concerned right now with the, the sort of the crackdown in terms of dissent and where things are, and I've been quite direct with the government about saying that and how, how I feel. So there's not a, I don't want to give you a sense that there's an inherent bias that everything's rosy and great, because that's not how... Well, I, tell me, Ambassador... 30 seconds, Jack. Uh, uh, pardon? 30 seconds. Yes, uh, in... Uh, <clears throat> You mentioned human rights, and I wanted to raise another issue about uh, McKinsey having a, a seminar very close to the Uyghur in the internment camp for Uyghurs. Were you sensitive about human rights in, in that situation, or were you aware of it? Um, on, on that situation, I think Kevin Sneeder has come out as the managing partner to apologize on that side. There was no awareness at all on the McKinsey side that there was anything going on uh, with the detention camps, and if they had, they wouldn't have done it. So there's an uh, apology for... That actually having happened, and it wouldn't happen happen again. So I would say that uh, that side, that's how I view it. And it doesn't take me away from my role as ambassador to Canada to raise direct concerns with that issue um, with the with the Chinese government. Thank you, ambassador. You suggested that McKinsey wasn't aware of the detention camps at the time when the corporate retreat in Kashgar happened. Is that is that what you said? Mr. Chair, I did. Okay. Um, because, like, these mass detention camps were, were denounced by a UN committee a week before the retreat happened. Um, I mean, did, did McKinsey just kind of miss the news item, or...? Mr. Chair, if, if, you, if you'd like to talk about my background with McKinsey, I'm very happy to keep going on that. I'm not sure if that's what we want to do in the committee, but I'm very happy to go yeah, into Yeah, I, I control the five minutes. I think this is very important for the public interest, sir. Did you, because you're telling me you're not aware of a lot of things or weren't aware of a lot of things that are, are pretty fundamental. You, you said that McKinsey had this corporate retreat completely unaware that there were concentration camps four miles away. Mr. Chair, what I'm saying is that uh, I don't, I'm not trying to absolve myself or anything. I'm happy to, I'm saying that McKinsey apologized for that having been done. It is my understanding that they were not aware uh, that that was the case. That's what I'm saying. And and again, it, back to some of the earlier comments that you made uh, about the situations like the company with the South in the South China Sea. You're saying you know McKinsey's working with them, and then implying that McKinsey's working on building things in this is just completely false. Um, sir, so I, all I sir with, with respect, what I order, said... Just, I, I just ask members to show respect and make sure that we have a chance to hear from each person because, of course, we have interpreters who need to have the time to uh, interpret. 
Mr. I think the process is that I control the time, but I'll ask a question, and Mr. Barton, you're, you're, I, I'd like to hear your response to it. Um, you have said that, that there was not an awareness of what was happening in these camps by McKinsey, and yet you know, there, there, were, there was news items, there were UN reports beforehand. Um, you said you're not aware of Canada's policy in the South China Sea, um, my charge is never that McKinsey was physically building these these installations in the South China Sea. It's that McKinsey was advising the companies and working with companies under UN under World Bank sanctions that were, in fact, doing this. And you said you're not responsible because you know there's the big company and so forth. That, uh, but you set the policy direction. So I mean, are are, are you comfortable that all of these things were happening uh, under policy direction that you set? Uh, are, are these the things that you consider consistent with, with your personal values? Mr. Chair, there's a lot to unpack in that. If I'll, I'll try and answer uh, it. I think one, as I said, again, on the situation with the retreat and the Uyghur detentions, I'm saying that uh, McKinsey has said they were not aware of, of the case. Um, as it relates to the uh, South China Sea, as I said, I'm going to follow government, what the government policy is. We we basically believe we should follow what arbitration uh, says and where and when and what they what they want to do um any more detail on that i'm going to have to get advice from 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 where it is but we believe in what international arbitration says so i'm not trying to skirt the issues i'm just trying to say that on mckinsey's side i'm happy to go into that as much as you want um, i just would be careful about conflating what mckinsey was doing versus what was actually happening. Sir, sir, I I really look forward to seeing that complete list of companies, state-owned companies that, that, that you advise. I hope you'll be able to submit those to the committee. Um, you said at the beginning of your testimony that you commend what China is doing to try and contain uh, the coronavirus. Um, part of what China is doing to contain the coronavirus is that uh, when somebody dies of this virus, their, their, their body is taken away from the families. They're not allowed burial. They're banning... Uh, Christian funerals. Um, are, are you are you aware of the sort of human rights abuses that are happening in the context of uh, of of this so-called effort to contain the coronavirus? And do you want to qualify your initial remarks at all that you commend what China is doing in this respect? Uh, what what's going on in China right now with this is is unbelievable, and I don't think we should underestimate the scale of what's happening and how the infections occurs. I've not heard anything. Uh, that would suggest to me that they're doing this for religious purposes at all, but they're terrified of the spread of where this is. And I think the scale of what's going on, this is like Berlin 1948 with the airlifts, getting food in there and so forth. It's, a, it's an unbelievably high-scale operation. That's what I'm commending them for, lock down a city of 11 million people to try and protect all of us from not getting infected, I think is a very worthy... Uh, a, a very worthy thing, and I commend them for that. Thank you, uh, Mr. Janice. Ms. Yip. Thank you, Ambassador Barton, for coming such a long way uh, to join us today. Part of our mandate of this committee is to review councillor relations. Can you provide an update on evacuation efforts happening in Wuhan, and what are the other countries doing to evacuate their citizens? Um, thank you, uh, Mr. Chair. As I, I mentioned, uh, we have, I think it's 373 Canadians that have said they want help. 
and we've got 211 on the flight manifest for this plane, which uh, hopefully will leave tomorrow uh, around noon. Um, so that leaves a, a gap. And what we're looking at to help the, the, in, in closing that 373 to 211 is we're talking with the British and the Americans. The, the, the minister, I think, talked about that this afternoon uh, because they've got room on planes and they're right there. So that would be a f the fastest way. But there's all sorts of logistics challenges. So we're, we're looking at that carefully. And at the same time, we're looking at this second plane coming in. We've actually, we know, we've got the plane. It's ready. We're, we just don't want to send a A380 to pick up five people, right, and where it is. So that's what we're, that's what, that's how we're working it. The, um, one of the things that's been quite, uh, it, you know, important in this is the registering of Canadians. So there were only, I think it was 91 Canadians that, the people that registered as Canadians on January the 10th in Hubei province, right? As the crisis emerged, we're now up at 500. So we, so what we're also doing is, where are the other areas in China where we have Canadians uh, we're registering and where is the infection moving and where does that, so we're not, not to use that tired expression about where's the puck going, that's what we're trying to figure out where that is ahead of time so that we, are, we, we know uh, what's happening. So those are some of the things. The challenge too is the, is the logistics on the ground. I, I spoke to someone this morning, a family that had traveled 250 kilometers to get to the airport. And when they got into the airport, there's no more water in the vending machines. It's cold. And we, you know, we, we can't get our people into the airport because of the security. So it's working out those details is what, and we need to be as responsive as we can. Uh, so that's, I don't know if that gives you enough. Um, are you in discussions with the Chinese government to allow you more access for the councillor officials on the ground? For example, what you just said about the water trying to get in and yeah, so forth. They're, they're actually, they're, Mr. Chair, they're being very helpful. Like we, we raised the issue, they'll say, okay, where are, where, are the, where are they? So they actually will try and they're trying to help themselves as they, they go through it. They've also, we've really beefed up the team that's on the ground because uh, they're very nervous about the number of people coming in, so we've added we have we've added a second team uh, to to go in, and that takes. So they're being very open on it. They're it's their, but they have very strict controls. It's like like ten to twenty stops that people have to go through to get to the airport, and though you know those are those are ones we're trying to help. We got to help get these people uh, through. So we have very direct communication with them, and they're they're. We, we found that to be quite helpful. So there is enough staff on the ground in Wuhan, but what about should there be other affected areas? Well, that's why, again, we, we actually haven't reduced our embassy staff as much as other countries like uh, Australia or, or the UK because we want to basically have the resources to be able to, to deal with that. And as long as people are not afraid, and they're not, um, we would like to have those resources. We're also reallocating people, so we've moved people from immigration, where there's not actually a lot of activity, you know, there's not a lot of tourists flying. Uh, we've moved them. I'm sorry, oh, sorry. I'm just going to cut you yeah. off, so I can just ask my next question. China does not recognize dual citizenships. We know that there are Canadians who entered China with a Chinese passport, and now they are not allowed to leave Wuhan. What is being done to help these Canadian citizens, and also what is uh, being done to help Canadian permanent residents? Yeah, Ambassador, I just want to ask all members to try to make sure I'm, that, we, that when a question is asked, the, the, the witness has an opportunity to answer. Of course, I think there was, but 
I just want to point that out. Okay. Okay. Ambassador. Sure. Quickly, that, you know, China has quite a strict rules about, you know, the consular services and and uh, uh, how it worked with permanent residents and so forth. What what they and they do that with all countries. What we're doing is we don't want to, and they've agreed to this, we don't want to break families up, if you will, and they're being helpful on that. I've had a number of conversations, and I'm, I'm a pipsqueak in it because the team's doing it, but just to check in where you've got, you know, a husband who's a Canadian citizen, you've got a permanent resident, and then you've got a one-year-old, and they're being breastfed. How do we, they all go, they're all going. They're gonna, they normally wouldn't, but they're gonna, they want to keep the families together. Um, but they, they have a, a policy that we have to deal with. We're, we're trying to push it um, in other cases. Is that? Thank you, Ms. Yip. Uh, now, Mr. Albus. Thank you, Ambassador. I appreciate your, your service. Uh, obviously, with service comes uh, scrutiny from the public, including their officials, so appreciate uh, you being here. Have you ever met with Huawei officials in your capacity as Canada's ambassador to China? Mr. Chair, I have. Hmm. So would you mind putting on the record who did you meet with from Huawei and where did you meet with them and roughly when? Uh, Mr. Chair, I'm not sure what the um, <laughs> privacy rules are, but I have had uh, outreach from them, from some of the senior uh, vice presidents uh, to talk, you know, about, um, you know, information that, re you know, that relates to the consular cases. Privacy Act pertains to Canadian citizens. So, right. were you? Did you meet with these officials in in China? Yes, I did. Okay, and were they Chinese uh, officials from Huawei, or were they Canadian ones? Uh, they were. They were Canadian. Uh, one one was Canadian, one was Chinese. Okay. Yeah. What was the nature of your conversations? Um, again, I'm not. I'm a rookie at what's privacy or not on this sort of thing. But I'm. What I would say. Uh, is that they were conversations about uh, the relationship between Canada and, and China and, and, and the Hmong situation and what was happening and so forth. It was just them giving their views about how, what, what the situation was like and what, what was happening. And I'm, my view is I'm, I'm open to hearing ideas from, and, and views from many different people that are in the system. It wasn't... Uh, negotiation or anything like that. It was in, it was just, here's our view about what's happening. Did you raise the illegal detention of uh, Michael Spaver, Michael Kovrig? Absolutely. I, I always do that uh, when I have the chance, and I, I did. In this case, what, uh, what did any efforts come from that? Any commitments by those officials? Um, you know, again, it's unclear to me what influence um, the company has in China and where it is and it's not for me to sort of figure out the, the detail of it so I'm you know what what so what I expressed uh, was that you know while you may be very upset and concerned because Madame Meng has been arrested we are very upset and concerned because Michael Spaver Michael Kovrig have been arrested and we've had the death sentence put on Richard uh, uh, Schellenberg, or Robert Schellenberg. So we've had, that was the nature of the discussion uh, that, that went on. Did uh, the Huawei officials ever suggest a, a so-called prisoner exchange, um, as has been suggested by Eddie Goldenberg and applied by other senior liberals, such as John Manley and Jean Chrétien? Uh, they did not to me. Okay. Um, again, I, I think it's important for us to be asking, because as you said, the relationship is broken, 
and you talked about wires and linkages. Uh, and I, I think that obviously talking to the business community among others. Um, sir, you mentioned earlier the position on this, your lack of knowledge of the position on the South China Sea. Obviously, that's a very important issue, geopolitical issue. Uh, it's important to trade. It's important to Canada. I'm from British Columbia. So uh, having some certainty in those areas is very important. On July 12th of 2016, uh, at the time, the Minister of uh, Global Affairs, Stefan Dion, had said uh, that uh, he welcomed the tribunal um, ruling on the Convention of the Law of the Sea uh, by a UN body. And in it, he said, Canada therefore stands ready to contribute to initiatives that build confidence and help restore trust in the region. Ambassador, how can you stand for ready for initiatives that build confidence and uh, helps restore trust if you don't know the government's position on the South China Sea? Okay. Um, as I mentioned on the, on the South China Sea, just to clarify, I, we respect, and I say that, we would respect what international arbitration uh, rulings are on what's happened in that case. And the international ruling um, is that there is a concern. ASEAN has also raised issues, and we've supported that uh, in where it is. Um, that's, the, that's the point, I would, I would say. Um, so I actually think I do have a view on that. Um, I think that on maritime issues in general, the Canadian government doesn't have, we, we respect international arbitration and policies, but we're careful about what we talk about on the maritime side. On the South China Sea, I very much worry about trade being able to flow in through places. We care a lot about that. I know we do a lot, uh, for example, in the Taiwan Straits, the, the Navy uh, goes, uh, goes through there as a matter of course in, in what we do. So open sea routes are, are important. Uh, thank you, Mr. Albus. Uh, Mr. Oliphant. Mr. Chair, and uh, thank you, Ambassador Barton, for being with us. Um, I think it's important to note that our, uh, our committee is doing some important work, and our work is meant to look at uh, this complex, important relationship that we have with China. Um, you've been invited here to help us. Um, I think that some members of, uh, that are uh, subbing on the committee seem to think this is an American-style confirmation hearing. Uh, this is not. Uh, and I want to make sure that people watching this recognize that uh, your appointment is, has followed due process. And um, everything about this appointment has been for the best interests of Canada. And I personally want to thank you for your, your public service in, in doing this. Um, so point this is order, not Mr. Chair. about you. Point of order. order. Mr. Dennis, point of order. Yeah, Mr. Chair, I, I think you'd find that it's out of order for the member to imply uh, that in a, free, in a free society, tough questions to public officials yeah. are out of order. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, it is you. important that in Canada, Mr. Genes, we are able to ask challenging questions to government Genes, appointees. This is a matter of debate, Mr. Oliphant. Thank you. Um, I didn't name any names. I, I'm saying this is not about you. This is about Canada's relationship with China. Uh, and I'm no expert on China. Uh, on my trips to China, however, I am... If I had a dime for every time Norman Bethune's name is mentioned, I would be wealthy. And it is a constant thing. On my most recent trip to China, I thought that that would help the Chinese understand the importance of the relationship. What I heard was a different thing from Chinese officials, and that was that they expected that we would then understand them better. 
And that it becomes a complex thing that we're, we were talking like this. They saw an extradition uh, process as being one thing. We saw arbitrary detention as something else. We weren't speaking the same language. Can you tell us how you're trying to pull those two vectors together to get us on common language? Sure. Because um, I, I, I do think there are, as I said, from the history and the culture, different perspectives and views on the world, right? And I, I think that what we first tried to do is move away from what I'd call the speech reading on both sides, We, which literally was first, it, you know, you um, have, you are lapdogs of the U.S., you've done this and that and the other. It was a, you know, ver you, you um, and why they were so upset with that. And, and we're saying we're, you know, we're following the rule of law in what we did. We have an extradition treaty and how this works. And it did, it did, you did see that. But part of it was because there was no discussion. It's just uh, both talking at each other and no time for discussion. And I think what I, I found to be helpful, and again, we have to get results, otherwise this is activity with no impact, is, is, to, un is to unpack it a bit and say, well, you know what, we actually have this long-standing relationship. We, we have, our people like each other, actually, you know what I mean? There's a, so let's go back to what we like about each other. Let's not forget that, right? And let's talk a bit about why is that the case and why, what, what are some of the things we did for each other in the past to just build trusts and open the ears on both sides um, of, of where it is. And there are going to be different, we're never going to be singing from the same hymn book uh, on this, right? We're going to have, but we can actually start to find that there's some common areas that we can work on. We have a lot of things to work on in a common agenda uh, that, are, uh, that are out there. Um, and let's not, when we think about this challenge we have, let's not lose the forest for the trees. I don't, I don't know if I'm answering your question, no. but that's... Are you hopeful? I, I am hopeful. What would I, give you hope? I'm, I'm, I'm hopeful, A, I'm just by definition an optimistic person, so you have to take that. I'm, and I'm, but, I, but I actually, I believe it's small steps, and the fact that we, no, we did not have any formal communications. We, it was all a lot of it informal. We now have very good formal relations. We have real discussions where we can argue and, and debate, and there's a, let's try and figure this out and understand where, where things are. So there's a, mo there's a momentum, and I think they want to have this sorted, and we want to have this sorted. Um, and I feel like there's a broader discussion, and there's small steps. Again, I go back to the meat and the pork, and you know that's not a, um, that I have nothing to do with that. The Prime Minister is very nice to say, that, but the part of it is that, that we couldn't even get to resolve the issue because of the, we couldn't communicate or talk. Now that we could communicate, we could actually resolve the issue. That's what, I, and so these things start to open up other opportunities, and those are signals or green shoots. So, sorry, I, well, I see lots of green Perfect. shoots. Thank you. I do want to drill down a little bit in terms of lessons learned. You, you did say when being advised by other countries and partners, uh, allies, that one of the important um, lessons to be learned is not to be bullied. Uh, frankly, Canadians feel like we're being bullied right now. We have the arbitrary detention of uh, Canadian citizens. We have uh, what seems to be arbitrary and nonsensical um, cutting out of our, our, our agricultural exports. Uh, you, you mentioned pork. It's interesting that you uh, mentioned that you believe that the that the that the um, the uh, elimination of the the export um, 
well, allowing Canadian pork back into China was a, was a good sign. Um, wh why did you say that? Well, Mr. Chair, I, I, as I said, I did hear uh, from many different, you know, embassies and countries on, on the, first of all, I just want to say yeah. about this notion of not being bullied. And I think that's standing up. And that's why the Prime Minister is, is not interested in doing prisoner swaps uh, on, on that. That's, uh, so it's, it's being clear, we have a system and where it is, and people say, stay, you do that, but do that and you move through it. On the agricultural to your question. I, I, I wasn't clear in my question, I don't, I don't think. You, you, you said that it was, a, it was a, um, a good sign. Most Canadians believe that it was an arbitrary decision for the Chinese simply to shut out. It, it, it was for ulterior reasons that they were shutting out Canadian pork. Uh, the Chinese have made the case that they believe that it was because of a document issue. Do you believe that it was done that 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 the that the uh, uh, that the ban was lifted because of uh, reconciliation of the documents, or do you believe that it was because they decided to show uh, some indication of goodwill? Um, Mr. Chair, this is an area that I've delved into quite deeply with the industry, the, Ch the Canadian Meat uh, Council, um, and. Uh, what I would say, the view is that there were, we did, there was a mistake that was made. It was not seen as a arbitrary shift. If I might just finish, the issue was then being able to try and get that so it stopped. And because there was no discussions, we couldn't, we then couldn't figure out how to resolve it. As the discussions moved on, then we were actually able to resolve it. And it's in China's interest, but it, it was stuck. It, it was a mistake. It was stuck. And now, I think through very good efforts from the Meat Council and others in the industry, they were able to, uh, you know, and, and, and Ag Canada and everyone get it sorted and move. Yeah, so we have a major issue and it's, it's, a, it's an ongoing crisis in the canola exports. Um, where are we at with that? Uh, Mr. Chair, is that... Because, yeah. pardon me, again, the vast majority of Canadians, especially Canadian farmers, believe that this is arbitrary, that this has nothing to do with canola, that this is simply retaliation for a relationship gone, gone sideways. Um, Mr. Chair, first thing I'd say is anyone who knows me knows how passionate I am about the ag food industry and where it is. So it's a, I have a very strong personal interest in, in that because I think there's, there's a very significant opportunity. Um, uh, I do think that that was a uh, punishment, if you will. They stopped it. And what's happened uh, is, as I said, we've gone to the WTO. Uh, that has led to now uh, what I think are some constructive discussions, technical discussions that we're having. So. It's moving, it's moving forward. Um, at the end of the day, the resu results matter, but, but there's momentum. Hello again, I'm Peter Van Dusen. You've been listening to the hearing this evening of the Special Committee on Canada-China Relations and the questioning of Canada's Ambassador to China, Dominic Barton. As you heard, some very pointed questions about his qualifications to be Ambassador and his time in the private sector and the connection between those two things, the time in the private sector and his job now as ambassador as he tries to repair the damaged relationship between Canada and China. That is all for another edition of Primetime Politics on CPAC, the cable public affairs channel. Thanks for watching.